You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this briefing previewing new uh, MIT UCSD research on measuring Internet congestion. Uh, I'm really happy that you all came out uh, uh, as you know, this event is organized by the uh, MIT Information Policy Project uh, and the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee. Uh, my name is Danny Weitzner. Uh, I'm um, the director of the MIT Information Policy Project. I also have the honor of being a board member of the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee. And I uh, really want to start by thanking Tim Lorton and, and all the IEF uh, staff and board members who make this organization possible. Um, uh, as you know, uh, the uh, Internet Caucus uh, here on the House side uh, is is uh, chaired by Congressman Bob Goodlatte and Congresswoman Anne Eshoo. Uh, we appreciate their support. Uh, the Senate co-chairs are Senator uh, Pat Leahy and John Thune. Um, you all have been to Internet Caucus Advisory Committee events. You know that the caucus uh, doesn't always agree on policy positions, uh, but is uh, uh, very committed to uh, promoting uh, uh, a well-balanced and dynamic debate amongst all the Internet stakeholders. Uh, the Internet Caucus Advisory Committee is a private sector organization comprised of public interest groups, trade associations, nonprofits, and corporations. Uh, we take no position on legislation or regulation. Rather, our aim is to create a neutral forum, uh, no pun intended uh, for today's topic, uh, um, uh, um, uh, to discuss issues of importance in the Internet environment. The MIT Information Policy Project, uh, uh, the, the other host of this event, uh, is a new research and education project at MIT uh, whose aim is to bring an engineering perspective to critical Internet public policy questions such as privacy, security, and in this case, uh, 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 Internet regulatory issues. Uh, we aim to provide technically grounded research that can inform the policy process uh, around the world and also to train the next generation of technology policy experts for work in government, civil society, industry, and academia. Uh, this event is being uh, videotaped. You'll find a uh, uh, you'll, you'll find the video on uh, both the Internet uh, Caucus Advisory Committee website and on uh, the uh, IPP website. You can uh, follow us uh, at infopolicy at MIT, uh, hashtag NNData. Uh, just a bit about how we're going to run the show here. Uh, we're going to uh, have the, the main presentation from my colleague, uh, Dave Clark, who I'll introduce in a moment, and then we're going to uh, have a discussion with our a very distinguished panel, um, and hopefully by the time we get to that, Jeff Eisenach will have shown up. Uh, uh, but otherwise, maybe Gene Kimmelman will play him. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so let me let me first. Uh, ah, there he is, just on cue. <laughs> Jeff, always with a good entrance. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Come on in and have a seat. <laughs> All right. All right. No problem. Um, uh, let me introduce uh, Dave Clark. Dr. Dr. Clark is a senior research scientist at MIT CSAIL, um, uh, uh, my co-founder of the new uh, MIT Information Policy Project. Um, uh, he has a PhD in electrical engineering, I think it was called then, uh, uh, from MIT in 1973. We didn't call it computer science yet, did we? Or did we? Just barely. Just barely. Okay, just snuck right in there. Um, he... Uh, has really been one of the leading architectural figures uh, in the Internet environment throughout the uh, 1980s, 1990s. He's done research in this area that's, that's quite extensive, both on the, 
the computer science and public policy side. Uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that the Internet has many parents, uh, but and Dave is certainly one of them and uh, someone who I think the world really owes uh, an enormous uh, 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 debt of gratitude uh, for, for the work that he's done in, in building the Internet environment uh, to where it is today. Um, so uh, we're going to hear from Dave, and then we'll go to our panel. So okay. go ahead. So we're going to do a little. We're going to do a little tag team here. Whereas when I advance my slides, he's going to advance the slides over there. If we get out of phase, that's too bad. Um, before I begin, let me give two caveats. I want to stress two things about this talk. The first is the word preliminary. We're talking about some very early results here. We think they're timely. We think they're uh, suggestive and worth considering. But we're talking about a project that's at its infancy, and you will detect, especially. Uh, as we get into discussion, um, a lot of caution about overgeneralization. The other thing I want to stress is that while MIT organized this meeting, the research itself is a collaboration between our group at MIT and a group at UCSD called CADA. Uh, Matthew Lucky down there is from CADA, uh, and Amog Damri, who is sitting out there, is from CADA, and they've done an awful lot of this work. So uh, this is absolutely collaborative. Now, having said that, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give just a little bit of a tutorial, which I'll go through quickly, on what Internet interconnection is like. I'm going to explain what we set out to do and just a teeny tiny bit on how we did it, but this is not a technical audience, so I'm not going to give a technical talk. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about our initial results. I'm going to give some illustrative examples. I'm going to give some summary observations, which is where I have to avoid overgeneralizing, and then we're going to have some discussion here among the panel. So, I want to just say something about motivation. I think there's a lot of confusion, especially in the non-technical community, about how much congestion there is in the interior of the network. There are people who think that the interior of the network is, is full of excess traffic, it's under-provisioned, everything works poorly. There are other people who think, well, it's great. And especially at interconnection peering points, when ISPs connect to each other, there's been a suspicion that those are points of, of overload, of slowdown. There is no technical reason why you would expect to find congestion there. So I think these would signal, and I guess this is, this is not what our data says, this is the context for how we did the research. Congestion at interconnection point generally signals something like contention around business arrangements or strategic behavior or something like that. But there's little prior data on what kind of congestion actually exists. So what we set out to do in this project is see if we could develop a method which involves a probe at the edge of the net. We are not in the net. We are not uh, using data from the ISPs just so that we can get an independent third-party perspective on whether there is congestion in the network. Now, so here's my five-slide tutorial. And, you know, if you know how the Internet works, you can go to sleep for a minute. The, the cartoon story of how the Internet works, and this slide is wrong. Somebody told me, never put up a slide that's wrong because that's the one they'll remember. But, you know, the old story about the Internet is that there, there are little people called Tier 2 Providers and they hooked to big people called tier one providers, and the tier one providers all hooked to each other. And this link here, which I've drawn in dots, is called transit. You pay for access to the internet. Tier two pays tier one. And then these guys sort of cooperatively hook together. That's called peering. That's the sort of old-fashioned cartoon story. What is it closer to? It sort of looks like this. The tier twos, in fact, have a very dense mesh of connectivity today. Orders of magnitude, this helps. How many tier one providers are there? Probably less than 15. There's a dispute. If you're amused, 
to watch people snit at each other about the exact count. Go to Wikipedia and type in tier one provider. You can see people sniping. You're not really a tier one. You paid somebody. Never mind. There are about 45,000 in total entities that have what's called an autonomous system number. About maybe 40,000 of them sit down here. They're just attached to the network. Okay? And so maybe there's about 5,000 people here. <laughs> <laughs> intuition, right? Who are the tier one providers? Level three is a big one, Cogent, Tata. Some of the access networks that actually provide retail are also AT&T, Verizon. Some don't try to be tier ones, Comcast, Cox, and Warner, and then some overseas, like BT, Cross Telecom. These are the ones you find at this level. Who do you find down here? Everybody, right? LIT, Harvard, UCSD, okay? You hook on the network. Now, what was the research question? Oh, one more, one more tutorial here, okay? Today, these networks are appearing, and these connections here are cooperative interchange connections, okay? You might find a typical ISP, let's say Comcast has been very much in the news because of the disputes between Comcast and Netflix. I'm going to use, I'm going to use Comcast as an example in some of these slides. If you look at Comcast, you might find they have about 50 peers. It's not like three, okay? Now, let me just make sure everybody knows what peering means. Peering means that when I book to you, it is for the purpose of letting each of our customers have access to the other. We are not giving you access to the Internet. We're not giving you access. When, when Comcast peers with Verizon, what that means is Comcast customers can get to Verizon customers over that link. Verizon customers can get to Comcast customers over that link. But the question of how do you get to the rest of the network, there's always this transit which is your path of last resort. So, in fact, only a small fraction of the traffic is going over these transit links today. For typical ISP, most of it's being exchanged down here. Furthermore, I drew a little black line in. It's very important to understand. This is a cartoon. Two big ISPs would probably attach to each other, have peering connections, at multiple physical locations, east coast, west coast, both for efficiency of traffic delivery and resilience. And in those sites, you don't want to have this impression that sort of a wire going between them. These are big, massive connections. Typical connection today carries 10 gigabits a second. You think about that number, it's a big number. You might have multiple, you might have parallel connections. So you're getting hundreds of gigabits per second of connection at multiple sites. So this picture doesn't begin to get at the magnitude of the scale and the complexity of the story. Okay. Now. If I put, a, and this is a cartoon still, if I put something like a content delivery network, either a network like Netflix that's trying to deliver its own traffic or a third-party CDN that delivers traffic on behalf of its customers, typical people in the marketplace today are Akamai and Limelight. What are they trying to do? They're basically trying to say, look, I want to hook to all the tier ones too because I want efficient delivery of the content. I try to negotiate a direct connection between my network and Comcast and Time Warner and ATT and BT and France Telecom and Deutsche Telekom and all those guys. Okay. So what's the research question? How much congestion is there on these links? How much congestion is there on all these links? When, for example, Comcast and Verizon choose to peer, do we find congestion on that link? Or is there enough capacity that we don't see moments of overload? Now, that was the general research question, but obviously the question of the moment centers around the disputes that have arisen most visibly between Netflix, 
which is the source of approximately one-third of all the traffic flowing into the access networks today. If you're Mr. Comcast, one-third of the traffic that's coming off net is coming from Netflix. Think about how much capacity there is. Netflix knows how much capacity that is. I don't know what they've said publicly, but I suspect the number is measured in terabits per second, not gigabits per second. And it's saying yes. Um, more or less, this is what the Netflix configuration looks like today. And I'm putting this up because I'm going to show some pictures later. Here's Comcast. I've drawn three of their peers. Remember what I said. There are probably 50 peers. I couldn't put 50 circles on the slide, but don't lose track of the scale of what's going on here. There are content servers that belong to Netflix, which are sort of clustered around the outside. For some people, by the way, some networks, by the way, you actually find these boxes inside the network, but I don't think that's what's happening with Comcast. The goal here is to get these boxes close to so get very efficient delivery. Okay. And by the way, these, these brown lines are, I think, I think roughly about 10 sites of the Netflix attached to Comcast. They may not want to say, but I'm telling you how many we can find when we probe the network. And again, there are going to be multiple paths. So this is not two little boxes, something that's just big stuff. Okay. So they connect at multiple sites. And a network like Level 3, which is a, a big network with which Comcast appears, also connects at multiple sites. Okay. That's what the picture looks like now. But as most people know who either read the news or watched Netflix during prime time, if you're on Comcast, there was, there was a problem in which they were having trouble negotiating this arrangement. And what happened while that negotiation was going on? Netflix, as a backup strategy, attached their content boxes to some of the networks who, in fact, the tier one providers that had the previous picture put the boxes here and then delivered the traffic to Comcast. And notice, by the way, Comcast is only by example here. Could be Time Warner, could be Verizon, any of these guys. Okay, I just need something on the slide. As I said Comcast is only an example. So the content was flowing over these links. And it's not just one thing, many links. Content was flowing over this, content was flowing over that. So the obvious question was, well, how much congestion on these links? And by the way, how does that correspond to the period, which is sort of the beginning of this year and so forth, and this was the configuration they had before they worked out the uh, arrangement. And how does it change now that we see boxes directly go down here? So that, by way of tutorial, three slides on how we're doing it. And the only reason I'm doing this to you is I want to show you some pictures. And you won't understand the pictures if I don't explain a little bit about what we're doing. So forgive me while I go engineering on you. We have a little box at the edge of the net. It is a little box. I forgot to bring one. You don't have one with you, do you? Yeah. Called a Raspberry Pi. It's about the size of a box of cigarettes. Really cute. And what it does is it just sends probe messages into the network. Okay? We do not require the cooperation of the ISPs. We have sought cooperation from the ISPs to corroborate what we're seeing. We have a lot of data that's been validated. And what it allows us to do, and I'm going to show you how, is not to say, is this path congested, but actually look at one link along the path. Now, the long-term goal of this result, this research, which is a multi-year project, is we want to do a time-varying atlas of congestion on the Internet, and we're hoping that this is what we can do. A lot of this work will be centered at CADA, which has a history of measuring the Internet, maintaining data sets over time, and obviously generating data to inform policymakers, other non-technical observers. How do we do it? Congestion on the network has a diurnal pattern, heavy load in the evening, light in the early morning, 
almost all of the graphs that plot lows on the net, where you get a sort of a waveform that looks like that. So even if you find a congested link, it's probably not congested 24 hours a day, okay? So what we do is we probe the link over time and look for variation that's associated, uh, look for diurnal variation that's associated with congestion. How do you do that? Basically what you do is you measure, by sending a packet and getting a response, you measure the amount of delay from your probe to the near side of the link in question, and you measure the delay to the far side in question, and if this little probe packet here encounters a congested link, it will sit in a queue, and therefore the round trip goes up. So what we do is we probe the, <coughs> the link over time, and we look for variation in the round trip. And that's what allows us to focus on a particular link. So can you find this signal? Is the signal clear? Well, here's just a random picture from our data. Um, uh, we try, as I said, we, before we talk about links, we try to get the data validated. Um, we haven't had this picture validated, so just think of this as an illustration. A lot of little blue dots here, those represent the measurements to the near side of the building. And the green dot, the green lines here, those represent the latency to the far side of the link. And you see a very clear variation. For some parts of the day, notice now days here, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. For some part of the day, there's no queuing. For some part of the day, there's queuing. That is evidence of congestion. And the width of this, from here to here, tells you how many hours a day the link was congested. We just probe the link over and over and over again, okay? What's the worst picture I ever got? Looks like this. Uh, again, I'm, this picture is just for illustrative purposes, but you'll notice that there was a brief period, probably four o'clock in the morning. Dave, do me a favor, stay close to the mic. Stay close to the mic if you can. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there was a period, early mornings, when this link was not congested, but for most of the day, this link was congested. Let me just stress. The height of the waveform tells you nothing. Well, it tells an engineer something, but you don't care. It tells you the size of the queue. Why do you care? You don't care. What I want to know is whether there's a queue there. Okay. Now, having done that as some illustrations... Let me come back to this picture where I said, how much congestion on these links, right? That's the question of the moment. Oh, I just wanted to put up one slide saying the test infrastructure comes from CADA. They are technically called little arc boxes. They do probing of the network. They have a bunch of them out there. Uh, they have about 80 probes around the globe. Currently, we're using 10 of them to measure. Uh, we're looking at about 10 access networks, some in this country. Uh, Verizon, uh, eight, uh, we don't, we're not have AT&T at the moment, Verizon, Time Warner, Comcast, Cox. Some overseas, we've measured uh, BT, we've measured Free in France. You remember that little waveform that I showed you a minute ago where you could sort of measure the width of this thing and say, well, that's how many hours a day the link is congested. Well, we can go back, or CADA can go back for a year. And so you get an eye chart like this where each one of these is a day, and if you measure the width of that, you say, well, that's how many hours a day the thing was congested. But you can't read this picture. I put this up just to illustrate what the raw data looks like. But if we measured the width of each of those things in terms of hours per day and then just plotted one dot per day, this graph becomes a lot more readable. So here's, here's a typical graph of the sort we could generate during a period of time in which there was some congestion. Now, I'm going to talk about this picture for a while because it takes a little explanation. Across the bottom is time. This starts February of 2013, and it ends in April of 2014. The vertical axis is how many hours a day the link was congested. 
and there are three color dots. The red dots are a path from Comcat, one path. We're just, this picture is just one path, right? There were many, many, many paths. It's just one path. The red dots are one path from Cogent, which is one of the suppliers of content, into Comcat. The green dots are from another uh, tier one provider who is in Tata. Uh, and the third is from level three. So you look at the beginning of the picture, you'll notice that there's a certain amount of congestion on level three, and there's a certain amount of congestion on, on Tata. I'm sorry, on Cogent. And then something really interesting happens sort of somewhere between May and June, which is all the congestion on level three goes away all at once. Boom. And you'll notice the blue dots all of a sudden are down on the bottom line, which is no evidence of congestion. And instead, all the congestion jumps up on Tata. And Tata becomes congested for four, five, six hours a day. And this goes on for maybe a month or two. And then, don't forget, each one of these dots is one day. More or less one day, all the congestion on Tata goes away, and the congestion on Cogent jumps way up. Then the next thing you see is you see the congestion building up over a period of time, December, January, and it builds up both on level three and on Cogent. And I think all parties to the uh, sort of the conversations about how this content was going to be delivered agree that Netflix content at the time was flowing into Comcast over level three and Cogent. And then there's this really interesting moment right in March 14 where more or less on one day, all the congestion goes away. It's not, it's not that we stopped measuring, right? All the congestion just went away. What happened then, that is when, or at least it cor correlation is not causality. Remember that in DC, correlation is not causality, you know. But there is a correlation between the observation that that's when Comcast and Netflix announced that they had resolved their, their business contestation and they were putting in place the connectivity to directly hook the boxes from Netflix into Comcast. So presumptively, all the traffic that had been coming in over Cogent and had been coming over level three was now, those paths were now relieved of that traffic. It's coming in over the direct connections to Netflix. So I think there are a couple of takeaway messages from this. One is that you can see that this, that this episode of congestion, which as I say, I would say is atypical, went on for more than a year. The second thing that you can say about this picture is you do see that there are actions that the different operators can take which can cause sudden and massive shifts in the way traffic flows. There's one day where the traffic is on Tata and the next day it's not there. Uh, let me show you another picture. Uh, just to make sure that we're equal opportunities here, we went overseas. There's another well-known dispute in the press, especially if you read, the, uh, read about Google's problems in France. Uh, Google has had a lot of trouble negotiating a direct connection agreement with Free, which is one of the uh, consumer ISPs in France. And indeed, we see substantial congestion on the links from Free into Google. And it's often the case that when we find congestion, we can actually correlate it with some dispute we hear about in the press. Now, there's an interesting comment I'll come back to here later. I don't have a picture, but we do have the data. Free is also running its transit links, which is to say the links it uses to get to the rest of the Internet, apparently somewhat congested. 
freeze links to the rest of the world are congested. And it's just a fact. Now you can say, what would you make of that? We'll come back to that later. Here's a different dispute. Uh, level three in a blog actually posted a criticism of some of their partners in which they said, we're having trouble getting adequate capacity to these networks. And they posted this picture, which technically is called an MRTG graph. And I'm going to go over here and point for a minute, but the way the, the, the signal of a congested link here is a usage graph which has a flat top. It looks like a mesa out west. That's when the link is fully loaded. So presumably in that period, there was evidence of, one could assume that there was evidence that there was more traffic than could be carried. And, and in their blog, they basically criticized their partners. But you'll notice if you look at this graph closely, there's a little smudgy thing. There are actually two little smudgy things there and there. And that's because most of these peering agreements are covered by non-disclosure agreements. So they weren't actually in a position to name who they were criticizing. They were just naming, you know, unnamed uh, peering partners. Well, so we can look at the same links using our tool. Now, that graph didn't tell us what the link was, but we know what links there are, so we went looking. So here's a, a this were in Dallas. Here's a link between level three and, in this case, AT&T. And again, evidence of congestion here. Bump, bump, bump. We also looked at a link between level three and Verizon, and we see some congestion here. Uh, so one obvious question is, well, did we find the same thing? Well, I could take m their picture and sort of make it transparent and slide it around and put it on top of my picture. And notice here, the flat-topped humps and the waveform. So what I'm pointing out here is that this method which, as I said, is very preliminary, is capable of finding and confirming, using a probe at the edge of the net, data which, in this case, the ISPs were trying to disclose, although they were limited in what they could say because presumably of non-disclosure agreements. But we have a method to sit at the edge of the net and say, what's really going on in there? We can look at a link and say, yeah, it looks congested. doesn't look congested. Now, um, I want to make some cautious generalizations. And this is, I think, when some of my research collaborators are going to get unhappy, uh, because generalization is always dangerous, and it's a, it's, a, it's a blood sport in Washington. We looked at four major US access ISPs. We haven't managed to look at AT&T yet. Uh, we don't have a lot of probes in these networks. For example, I think in Comcast, we have two or three different serving areas, one on the West Coast and a couple on the East Coast. Our data reveals only a few congested links, aside from these major content flows. Okay. Uh, doesn't surprise me you find two, a couple, couple of links that are somewhat congested in the jargon. They're called hot. Um, links have to be upgraded as traffic flows. We find a few links. We found one, and we called Comcast. Yeah, we know about that. We, we've ordered the parts. You know. And the congestion is of short duration. You see a link gets congested a couple hours a day. And you look again later, and we do have data sets where we looked in January and we looked at April, the congestion has gone away. But I want to stress, these are statements over a couple of measurement periods. Uh, we, had, we took some data in January and analyzed it. We took some data in April and generalized it. 
When we look overseas, we see somewhat similar pattern. We studied BT. I didn't see a lot of congestion on British Telecom's network. They, I talked to them about the connections, and they say, yeah, yeah you're seeing about the right thing. Uh, as I said, Free, which is a network in France, has congested transit links. And we do see congested links on expensive paths. For example, Comcast peers with, and I haven't confirmed this, but um, sorry, I'll tell you what I haven't confirmed. Comcast peers with ChinaNet in Los Angeles. Now, the peering link between Comcast and ChinaNet looks just fine, but the link across the Pacific, which belongs to ChinaNet, appears to be congested about 60% of the time. That's not Comcast's fault. It's just China's, China Net's decision that, now nah, we don't need a lot of capacity to the U.S. So if you wanted a, high, a good experience going to China, probably you're not going to get it over that link. Links across the Atlantic and Pacific are expensive. So the question is, how much do we generalize? I really want to stress, and I want to put some, 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 some caveats in here. This is very preliminary. I believe that when we're finding congestion, we're finding it. And as I say, we've corroborated this with some ISPs, although sometimes they, they sort of want to talk off the record. They say, well, yeah, sort of. Um, that overlay that I have between the data that Level 3 released and the pictures we have from AT&T seems to correlate very well. We haven't found all the interconnection paths because we only have a certain probe. When you probe in Boston or my house in Concord, when you probe on the West Coast, you actually see different points of interconnection because a network like Comcast hooks to people all over the place. We need more probes to see all the connection points. And it is possible we miss cases of congestion, and there are a lot of technical reasons why that might be. I'm not giving a technical talk. So there is a lot of work still to be done to refine the methods of data analysis. Our goal here is to set up a multi-year program, but we are talking about early results here because we think that this is timely and, and suggestive, and I think the conversation as, as people will now alarmingly generalize from our conclusions is, well, you know, what sort, of, what sort of might this apply about the health of the Internet or where regulators ought to focus their concern or so forth? But that's my talk, and for now we're going to have a panel discussion. Thanks, Dave. So uh, thank you. Dave, uh, we're going to go right to the panel. Let me tell you how this is going to work. I'm going to ask each of the panelists just to make uh, short uh, reactions under five minutes to, to the talk. Uh, Dave will then react to the reactions, and then I'm going um, to pose some questions. Uh, so I think we'll go uh, right down the line. Um, and and I, should, I should also introduce uh, our panelists who have been kind enough to, to join us. To my immediate left is Ike Elliott. He's the senior vice president. Uh, of strategy at Cable Labs. He also spent a lot of time at Level 3, so knows this environment uh, uh, very well. Ken Florence is the Vice President uh, uh, for Content Delivery at Netflix. Uh, really appreciate you being here, Ken. Gene Kimmelman is the CEO and President of Public Knowledge uh, and has um, uh, really quite extensive experience on consumer protection uh, issues in the telecommunications environment. Uh, Matthew Lucky uh, is a postdoctoral fellow at uh, CADA, that is the research center at the uh, University of California, California, San Diego, that uh, is is collaborating uh, uh, on this research and has a CADA has a, a really extraordinarily well developed program on network measurement in general, looking at many different aspects of the uh, the network environment. Um, and finally, Jeff Eisenach is uh, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, director of the Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy there. Uh, uh, I've known Jeff since uh, before the creation of the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, if you can believe that. 
um, uh, at when, when Congress in the mid-90s was at the very beginning of trying to understand uh, what to do about the Internet in general, and uh, Jeff was instrumental in helping Congress to fix some of its initial missteps. Uh, so uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with Ike and just ask you to uh, make some, some brief uh, reactions, and uh, we'll go ahead. And I will give, I will give speakers the hook uh, after five minutes. Thank you, Danny. Um, here, let me do this. That helps. Thank you, Danny. My name is Ike Elliott. I work for Cable Labs. Before that, I worked for Level 3 Communications, which would, at the time was primarily known as a backbone provider. So I have an interesting perspective on interconnection, both from a backbone perspective and from an access network perspective. If you don't know, Cable Labs is um, a nonprofit research and development company funded by over 50 different cable companies around the world. I'm not representing them here. I'm only representing Cable Labs. Um, and uh, we do research and development, including um, the DOCSIS specification that's at the heart of the broadband um, um, uh, offerings of all the cable companies around the world. I think there's three main points, and I, I will generalize a bit because I, I understand this is preliminary uh, um, research. And I would like to uh, thank the, the researchers. I think they've done some really innovative work here. Three main points that I'd like to make um, Again, generalizing because in my experience, the patterns they're seeing are are generalizable. They're, they're consistent with my experience. Um, first of all, there's little or no evidence of congestion, and if and if it appears, it's usually very brief um, in the vast majority of peering links, and they don't exhibit um, any persistent congestion. In the rare instances where this study does find severe congestion. It is outside of the ISP networks, in the on-ramps to the ISP networks. And the management of these links is a shared responsibility between the ISP and its interconnection partners. So it's not just the ISP who's responsible for managing those links. Third and most importantly, it's the sender of the traffic, or the web, that's the website or the content provider, that makes the first mile and middle mile routing decisions and chooses the on-ramp to use to reach an ISP. Um, the study demonstrates some video services are large and sophisticated enough to adjust loading and thus congestion levels on interconnection links. In examples from the paper, streaming video providers chose to send their traffic over congested transit links, while there was at least 40 other uncongested peers and a whole host of other CDNs, transit providers, direct connections that they could have chosen from. The fundamental technical point here is the streaming video provider is not the victim of ISP-manufactured congestion. Rather, the streaming video provider is manufacturing or creating some congestion themselves by choosing the route, the congested route, to send their traffic down when they had many other options to balance the load through other routes. Now, why would a streaming video provider choose intentionally to congest their traffic? I refer you to the peering playbook, which is um, written by Bill Norton. It's a manual for how to manipulate traffic in order to get a better deal in your internet interconnection um, in negotiations. Or I'll refer you to a good economist. We have one on the panel here. So I, I'm looking forward to what Jeff has to say in a few minutes to talk about the negotiating leverage that comes with controlling really large traffic flows. But there are two engineering economic points I'd, I'd like you to remember. First, streaming video providers have always paid third-party third content delivery networks or transit providers to get much of their traffic delivered to ISPs. That's nothing new. Incidentally, since 1998, 
the cost of transit has dropped from $1,200 per megabit per second to this year 94 cents per megabits per second. And last year it dropped 40%. Um, so it's still coming down. So as Chris Libertelli of uh, Netflix pointed out last week, um, it, it's, it's not really very expensive to uh, get traffic into ISPs, and it's getting cheaper all the time. It's not a lot of money. Second, some streaming video providers have tried to save even more by demanding free peering, even when there, there was no balance of trade. But settlement-free peering is not free, and it never has been, because major networks have always had peering policies that required their peers to have a similar investment in network infrastructure. They might not be trading money, but they're certainly trading the use of each other's networks. So does a streaming video provider have, or a CDN provider, have a network infrastructure to trade in a peering negotiation? Not usually. They just have servers in a data center. That's why streaming video providers and content delivery networks they use have usually paid to peer, because they have no network infrastructure to trade. This is a deep wisdom. If you can remember one thing, this is the thing to remember, because this provides incentives to invest in real network infrastructure, and it's been a part of the secret sauce that has driven Internet's rapid growth in capacity, over 1,500% growth in the last 10 years. It's a part of what motivates the $68 billion in annual capital investment by broadband networks in the United States. So ISPs have consistently enforced the peering policies they've had in place for years, and streaming video providers have been paying for transit or for CDN services all along, and I should add, they've been thriving. Which brings us back to Dr. Clark's research. Um, and I'm, I'm, this a closing point. What makes this research so important is that it holds the promise of shining some long overdue sunlight on the tactics that are used in the pursuit of free peering. And I hope that by, by providing good data, we'll reduce the kinds of traffic manipulation that sometimes results in degraded end-user experiences. Thanks, Danny. Ken, please. Thank you. So I know we've got short time, so instead of trying to address Ike's points directly, I'll just kind of read uh, the thoughts I'd written down, and I'm sure we'll get into more questions to to dive into this topic a little bit. So it's interesting that David makes the assertion that congestion issues are not, not widespread. I both agree and disagree with this assertion. It's true that for most networks and most markets in which we operate domestically and internationally, there are no persistent congestion issues. This is because most companies who are selling Internet access to their subscribers understand that what are, they are selling is just that, access to all of the amazing content available through all of the interconnected networks known as the Internet. Our experience at Netflix, however, was that a few of the largest residential Internet service providers in the U.S. deliberately and systematically allowed their congestions to connections to congest. Sorry. This happened despite the fact that we were providing free access to our own OpenConnect network and purchasing routes into their networks from five of the six top global transit providers. This practice is in stark contrast to all of the other U.S. ISPs who did provide sufficient capacity, either by connecting to OpenConnect or by providing capacity to their transit networks, as is the typical practice. It's exactly this mutual, frictionless, continual addition of capacity to meet the demands of consumers that has made the Internet the amazing driver of economic growth and innovation that it is today. 
As David's paper indicates, the reason for this congestion was financial, not technical. A few of the top networks were purposely degrading access to their networks in order to extract fees from providers of content their subscribers were requesting. This practice is in stark contrast to the long-standing practice of interconnecting without exchange of payment from either side. The net effect of these practices is that they harm consumers by not providing them the capacity they are being sold. Even worse, we see these consumers publicly denigrated as bandwidth hogs for using a small percentage of the capacity they have already paid for. A consumer who is being sold a 20 megabit internet connection should not be made to feel ashamed of using that connection to watch a 5 megabit Netflix stream. This is why Netflix advocates for strong net neutrality to ensure consumers get the internet speeds and quality they've paid for. Broadband providers should not impede, favor, or charge those who provide content that consumers want. That was a short one. Thanks, Dan. Gene. Thanks, Danny. Um, I'll try to be real short, too, because I think the, um, the, the research is fascinating, and I thank you, um, Dave, uh, for bringing this forward. I hope this will continue. Um, but I think, to me, what jumps out as I've heard, heard my two colleagues here, just I can kind of go back and forth, is maybe we get to start with a little bit of a context about what this data comes from. Um, so to me, this is an inherent policy problem. And the engineering and the data gathering are critical, but it, it starts and it ends as an inherent policy problem. I say that for the following simple reason. There are two kinds of profit-maximizing businesses in this discussion, at least two different kinds, just to oversimplify, going back to Dave's charts, um, on either sides of these lines. And their behavior is uh, constantly changing. It's a very dynamic market, not just on the technical side, but on the business side. Um, and they're just both looking for ways to maximize profits. So one could call it manipulate. One could call it playing games with market power. One could call it many different things, but it's an inherent problem that is going to always arise in this environment. And the environment, I think, is particularly troublesome right now because for those of us who have struggled with the ideas of how to maximize competitive opportunities, particularly in the video market over the last 30 years, it's extremely troublesome to get to a point where the best way to maximize video competition is to use the very same wire for two competing services, one called cable and one called broadband, to challenge each other. It is a recipe for disaster, although it happens to be our current state of play because of the inadequacies of other investments, other technologies to really provide that opportunity, particularly in a bundled service environment. So um, uh, to me, this is something that, as a, particularly I look at Dave's charts on the, uh, what he called the sort of cartoon characterizations of the relationships at various points. Um, one thing jumps out quite clearly or two things jump out quite clearly. It is extremely complex, even in a simplified form, and it can be constantly changed or manipulated, if you prefer to call it that. And for good business reasons or for maybe more nefarious exercise of market power, monopoly power. And so it calls out for policy oversight regardless of where one resides in this, uh, in, in this environment. Um, the, in, the incentives cannot be matched. 
if you really want to see these services in some way that use the same transmission capacity compete against each other. Um, and this isn't the first time we've experienced this. This has been the nature of the telecommunications network ever since the breakup of AT&T. Um, in a different era, it might have been called a co-location problem and a, and a different kind of interconnection problem. Um, uh, and we might have been doing a whole lot of cost allocations to figure out exactly who should pay what to whom. And we may end up getting there again if this persists because if the companies can't work it out collaboratively and this data gathering continues and it shows that there are congestion points and there are problems, the ultimate question will be how do we evaluate who bears the costs and how they should be distributed. And in this environment, we haven't been doing that lately, but we may be walking ourselves back to the telecommunications fights of the 1990s. So uh, beware what you ask for. Thanks, Gene. Matthew. Hi. So, yeah, this is – I'll be very short because most of my comments are uh, technical. I, I would reiterate Dave's point that this is very preliminary, uh, that the measurements that we're doing and the, the – are very complicated in terms of what can can potentially go wrong. We there are certain links that we know to be congested that we don't observe a signal for, um, and this is due to traffic management practices. Um, likewise, we could potentially falsely attribute congestion uh, to one party where there is not. So we're at the very preliminary um, step in this in this research. Our end goal is to have uh, what Davis is. Is illustrated as, as an atlas where we can map out a network, uh, all of its interconnection points, given that they are connecting at, at many different points in the, uh, in the network, uh, identify which ones seem to be congested, which ones don't, and, and then make that kind of data public. Um, but this is very preliminary and we're not quite there yet. Danny, thank you for having me here, Dave. Uh, this is important research. Um, let me just speak as an economist about some, some kind of uh, Econ 101 points that I think it's important to keep in mind as we think about this from a public policy perspective. I, I want to start by saying I, I think I agree with uh, about 75 percent of uh, what Gene said, and uh, the 25 percent goes to whether the glass is half full or half empty on the one hand and also kind of what, then coming out of that, what the right kind of policy response might be. But, but let me start by just making a couple economic points. <clears throat> the first point um, is that we're operating here in markets in which there are very large fixed costs and very, lar very low marginal costs. These are not the markets that you looked at in your intro economics textbook where price is supposed to equal marginal cost and everything would work out perfectly for economic welfare from that point forward. When you've got a market where uh, large fixed costs and low marginal costs, what that means, and it's pretty intuitive if you think about it, uh, is that if I set the price uh, equal to marginal cost, the textbook solution, uh, and also ultimately the welfare maximizing solution, right? At the end of the day, if I can make, a, if I can deliver a Netflix movie for a quarter of a penny to the marginal customer and the marginal customer values that Netflix movie for more than a quarter of a penny, you know, we'd love an economic system that finds a way to charge that guy a quarter of a penny. Problem is, if I charge everybody a quarter of a penny, nobody gets paid to make the movie, nobody gets paid to build the servers, nobody gets build, paid to build the infrastructure. I can't deliver it for an average cost of a quarter of a penny. It's just that last 
delivery, that last movie to the last person I can deliver for a quarter of a penny. So it's it's a much more kind of complicated economic scenario than people who kind of come out of an out of a undergraduate economics um, uh, course, you know, typically have in mind, and often gets talked about in the policy debate. You know, boy, prices just ought to reflect costs. Well, not necessarily, actually, because the next point in a market like this is what you actually want to do to achieve economic efficiency is you want to find the people who value that good most highly and are at least likely to change their behavior if you charge them a price above average cost, right? So they're still going to get the, the good, and you want to you charge them a little more. And when you do that, then that allows you to get closer to charging that marginal guy a little less than average cost, right? So you're, you're, you're moving towards that social equilibrium, right? What's that called? Well, it's this nasty word, price discrimination. Price discrimination, right? Price discrimination in markets like this is a good thing, not a bad thing, right? And it means that prices are not going to necessarily reflect costs. That's point number one. <coughs> point number two, how long do I have? Uh, three more minutes. I have three minutes. Good. I did price discrimination in two minutes. That's good. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about multi-sided markets and homing. We can do those multi-homing. We can do that real quick, too. Um, so, you know, why is this market not a monopoly? Um, uh, so what we have here, and I think Dave's um, you cartoonish, quote, unquote, charts, you know, really make the point very clearly. Netflix has lots of different ways to get its content to consumers, right? Um, this is not uh, a, a monopoly in any sense of the world. It's not a monopoly because, uh, in, in, uh, as you see in the charts, Netflix has got dozens, scores of ways uh, to find a way to get its content to consumers. Uh, its decision to pick one or another is its decision, right? And it's trying to do that in order to minimize costs, and maybe it's trying to do that to, to address the next thing I'll talk about, which is the bargaining problem. Uh, but, uh, but it's not like it's only got one way to get content uh, to the Comcast network and to Comcast consumers. And I don't think anybody's uh, arguing here that what something's going on between the time uh, Netflix traffic gets into the Comcast network and when it gets to the consumer, right? It's not about the 20-bit connection, megabit connection that's only delivering five. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the traffic isn't getting into the Comcast network efficiently, but there are lots of ways to skin that cat. Um, uh, thirdly, the bargaining problem, right? Uh, so in, in markets like this where um, uh, everybody's got some market power, right? Everybody wants Netflix. If you're a Netflix subscriber or you happen to like the content that's on Netflix, you know, you, they've got some market power. You're willing to pay more than their cost, certainly, uh, for that. And Comcast has got customers, you know, who want Netflix. If Comcast wasn't delivering Netflix, you know, that's not making Comcast customers happy. Uh, and conversely, you know, Comcast has got you know, the only network that some people are subscribed to at a given time. So both of these parties are trying to make use of the bargaining power that they have in this situation. And the question is, how do we divide up the pie, right? And so what you get is lots of kind of uh, strategic behavior. And often that strategic behavior leads people to rooms like this one, right, where we're coming back to the question, if some people are going to pay more than average costs and some people are going to pay less than average costs, I'd like to be in that other category, the people paying less, right? And that's, I think, what Netflix is ultimately telling you here today. They, except they're telling you something a little more. It's not that they want to pay less. It's that they want to pay zero because that's the public policy proposal that's on the table, right? Last point. How long do I have? Uh, one minute. One minute. All right. I can do this in one minute. Last point. Uh, yeah, there are lots of public policy ways to address these issues. In markets like this, uh, absolutely. Uh, everybody's running around with some market power. If you don't have some market power, you're not around, right? We don't observe the firms that don't have market power. They went belly up because they couldn't figure out a way to charge anybody more than marginal cost, right? They're gone, right? Those are the failures. So the only people you actually observe in the, in the world are people who've got some market power. God bless them. Uh, that's how all this stuff got built, right? 
So uh, in that kind of environment, do you need some sort of oversight? Sure. Uh, look at what happened with Microsoft and Netscape. I'm, not everybody agrees with this. I've always believed that Microsoft set out to make Netscape life, life hard in a way that violated the antitrust laws and we went after them. Okay? But that is a very fact-specific and case-specific inquiry, right, and ought to be conducted that way under the antitrust laws, which is the right set of criteria, right? Is competition being harmed, not some individual competitor, not some individual guy out to make a buck, right? Is competition being harmed? The ability of firms to enter and succeed in the marketplace, uh, is competition being harmed by a series of acts that's raising people's costs or excluding them from the marketplace? That's an inquiry that the antitrust laws were built to undertake, do undertake, undertake successfully, and ought to be undertaken if and when uh, it ever appears that somebody like a Comcast is trying to do in somebody like a Netflix. There is an answer for that, and we ought to pursue it, not regulate the market for peering. Thank you, Jeff. So um, I, I want to give Dave a little bit of time to respond. I, I'm going to then have a couple of questions for the panel, and I'm going to circle us back to some of the technical and research and operational questions, and then we'll get to the policy questions, and then you all will have a chance to uh, ask questions. So, Dave, do you want to um, respond to some of the points made? I, a, a couple of things quickly. Obviously, this being Washington, the, the conversation instantly elevated from our data to what different people might advocate. This doesn't surprise me. We, with respect to the data, we tried not to uh, be critical. So I think it's useful in these conversations to distinguish between what we, as people who gather data, might uh, comment on the quality of the data and separately what we might as individuals draw as conclusions about this, where it might turn out that Matthew and I would disagree about the interpretation. In some sense, I think what we've heard here is the, the, the storyline from from the, from the players that we've heard before, uh, I guess that as an engineer, I have a reaction which is that um, we will get efficient delivery of content through, through a cooperative delivery strategy. And so one way you can look at this is somebody ended up paying. Okay, I'm not going to comment on that. Okay. The second one is this took a while to resolve. It took a while to grow and it took a while to resolve. If you look at it from the perspective of both Netflix and from the consumer who was watching the movies, I think it's reasonable to conclude that during that period of time they had an impaired experience. And, and I think this is perhaps a place where I, and now I'm not talking about data, I'm just my own opinion. Okay, I'm in Washington, so I'll play policy too. It's not clear to me that antitrust is the only basis for arguing for intervention. I think. One of the goals here is to protect the consumer and to protect the quality of the experience the consumer has. And I think, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the FCC to say, not we're going to regulate interconnection, but to sort of clear its throat and say, guys, you know, this has been going on for nine months. What's going on there? And I think that in fact, an uncongested network is a is a benefit to the consumer, and and we should argue about what aspects of the technology protect the consumer's experience. But. Uh, I just guess I would say as we continue this conversation, uh, it's important to distinguish between what you might conclude and what we as, as, as engineers might say about this data and what I s assume is the obvious ongoing conversation about uh, business relationships and potential justification for policy.
policy interventions, then you should ask questions. So, so we're all kind of itching to get to the the, the bottom line policy questions, but I, I want I do want to keep us at 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 the data and at the technical details just for a little bit, so that we get all that clear. You, you've heard uh, both uh, Dave and Matthew say very carefully that this is preliminary, that they've only been able to study certain aspects of a very large network. Uh, um, uh, they, they got results that were interesting and correlated in notable uh, ways with uh, events that we're all familiar with, um, and that Ken's especially familiar with. Um, <laughs> um, so so we, we, we naturally focus on that. Uh, but I guess what I'd, I'd want to ask, um, I think in the first instance, Matthew and, and, and Dave, but also uh, uh, the rest of you is, um, what is it? What is it going to take to actually learn more beyond these these little snapshots about interesting uh, events uh, on the network? Um, if it's the case, as Dave said, that this this um, this experience of congestion uh, is at least plausibly an indication of suboptimal consumer experience, uh, we'd probably like our Regulators to know about it. We might also, we might even like consumers to know about it to understand whether they should be, you know, kicking their Roku box or calling Netflix and saying, "Why don't you have more servers?" Uh, or, or, or complaining to their ISP or complaining to the FCC or who should they talk to? So, 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 just, just in the first instance, um, you know, you, you guys with the data have kind of wet our appetites with uh, uh, the ability to know more about what's, what's going on and, and, and take policy action or not based on, on what's going on. What is it going to take to know more? And, and, and I'll ask for the, um, for the consumers of the research, that's basically everyone else on the panel, what would you want to know uh, uh, from, from these kind of studies? So the main, the main thing that we want to know is um, validation of our, our measurements. So what we have is our inferences, uh, and they seem to be correlated with events that are somewhat known in, in the press. Uh, but that, as a scientist, is, is quite a bit less than validation. And so one of the uh, one of the stumbling blocks we have is is in talking to operators of networks and trying to to confirm that the patterns that we see uh, in our in our graphs correlate with their traffic graphs. We have, in fact, only been able to obtain one graph that that can be correlated with, with our results. Um, beyond that, the only other data that we've been able to, to come across is the Level 3 blog, which where, where they presented a particular graph that we happen to have um, very good uh, insight of. So as a researcher, I get very nervous about having this data being sort of moved along as um, as potentially ground truth when the ground truth is really what the operators have of their networks, which is what is the utilisation of their networks. But so one thing that could, could help uh, substantially is to have some amount of cooperation, but of course this is covered by NDA. I wonder if there is some um, something that the FCC could do to to help us with validation of our results, to, to help us get confidence that what we're measuring correlates with reality. Um, but beyond that, it's the, the system building aspects of this. Uh, the, the graphs that we've showed so far, um, they required a reasonable amount of manual work to, to get them 
to, well, to find them and to, to graph them and to be sh confident that they correlated with something that was an event in the network. Um, there are many conflating factors at, that could confuse us. Um, and because this area is uh, very contentious at the moment, we're trying very hard to not um, identify a link that is congested when it's not or vice versa. Um, Thanks, Dave. So let me so let me give you a different answer by generalizing a little bit. I was giving a talk on this to my research group at MIT, and I said after the installation of the direct connections between Netflix and Comcast, it looked as us as if the majority of this congestion had gone away, and my two of my grad students started screaming at me, and they said my Netflix sucks, and of course you then get what I would call the standard rant, which is Comcast sucks, Netflix sucks, everybody sucks, nobody cares about me, I'm just a poor consumer. Why are these, why are these bad things happening to me? And after this, <laughs> after this outpouring of vitriol, we tried to dig a little deeper. And, and I think if there was a larger and more ambitious, and I would say somewhat coordinated, practice of measurement which could inform policymakers, it ought to start by trying to understand what is impairing the quality of the experience. And most consumers today, when they have a bad, I started to say a bad hair day, but let's not do that, um, don't know why it happened. And so they blame somebody random. So I was talking to one of these people, because I have my own theory about what goes wrong in the evening, and I said, by the way, when you did your speed measurement, was it a wired to your router or was it on wireless? And they said, so I use Wi-Fi in my house. I said, go home and do me, tell me something. When you turn on your wireless node, how many access nodes can you see? And they came back to me the next day and they said, I can see 30. Well, we're living in a student hovel. Everybody has his own little access node. And they're all interfering with each other. And for all I know, every part of the bad experience they were having had to do with Wi-Fi. But I can't prove it. And they don't have a tool, so they don't know who to blame. So they thrash around and they blame random people. But I would start from a consumer perspective and from a, to use the FCC's language, the edge provider perspective, and I would say, look, you know, can we find evidence that their ability to either participate as end user in the market or to bring a product to market is impaired? Let's look for the real harms. And so I would actually like, and this doesn't contradict anything Matthew said, I'm just describing a much more, uh, more bold and generalized program here. I think we ought to start by saying, look, let's understand what's actually impairing the user experience. And in some case, remedying this will be a cooperative activity. And I think even if, for example, Netflix, who's been my, my cartoon example of the ISP here, even if Netflix and, uh, sorry, Comcast and Netflix are, are in a business dispute, I suspect they would agree. It's worth having a joint conversation about how can we do this efficiently and how can we Im improve the user experience. And, you know, I don't actually think, Mr. you know, nobody from Comcast, well, nobody else from Comcast is on the panel here. I don't think they actually want their Netflix customers to have a bad experience because, look, like one-third of all their customers are on Netflix. You know, you don't want a third of those people calling up your help desk. So this question of whether, the net, whether it's in Comcast's interest to, to improve this, I think, or, or degrade this service, one way to find out is let's have conversations about focusing on where the impairment is and let's get rid of it. So, Gene. 
So I think Dave's framing is excellent. I certainly would want deeper data on those points, but I want to uh, get a little bit more. If I if there's limited resources as to what you're looking for and what you how difficult it is to find and how much manual labor it is, I would go back and look at that question about the what's impairing the quality experience. And go back to um, Jeff's comment about everybody's got market power here or they wouldn't be in business. And dig a little deeper because if you actually are using antitrust tools, Jeff, you're going to look and see whether you have a little bit of market power, a fair amount of market power, or an enormous amount of market power, bordering on monopoly power. And without getting too specific about who has what, we're not measuring that today, I would say if you're a content provider, um, how many paths, not into the Internet and around the peering structure, but how many paths into the home do you have to your actual end-use customer? Some have one. Many have two. Some have three. And almost all customers are in long-term contracts and disinclined to move. There's a lot of stickiness, whether there are two or three. And I would say I'm sure Comcast doesn't want their customers to be unhappy. It just happens to be the case that most of them are, and Time Warners, and a lot of other cable companies. Just look at customer surveys. How can that be the case? Because it's not Ford Motor Company and GM, where you can just go and find another dealer and buy a different kind of car. You usually only have a couple choices. So there's a difference in the market power. And I'm not saying other people aren't trying to game the system to maximize their profits and move traffic however they can to save money. Uh, you can value that, evaluate that as you like. But where there's a lot of market power, I would like to see much more measurement because I tend, having both done antitrust and been engaged in all kinds of regulatory activities, I tend to also agree with Dave that this is going to take more than antitrust, but I would want to start with Jeff's idea of using antitrust tools and just doing more careful measurement of whether there seems to be more of a problem where there's massive market power as opposed to less. So that I think one is an interesting place to start. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I heard from Matthew and I've certainly heard it from Dave is uh, striking to me from an from a academic research perspective that um, in order for Matthew to feel comfortable about making uh, uh, an assertion about how to interpret the data that he collects, he has to go get validation from the ISPs because there's data that they alone have. Um, and I want to make sure I get that correct. Uh, I, 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 think, I think that's what you're saying, Matt, so that, so that information that, that the public needs, that the market needs, um, uh, is not quite uh, as available, perhaps, as, as we might like it uh, to be. Um, you have a thought about uh, Ken and then Jeff. Yeah, so let, let me just have a, a word about transparency. Because boy, is that in the as Transparency is almost as good as discrimination must be bad, right? <laughs> um, so let me just talk about sharing price information among competitors, right? We go to your antitrust 101 textbook um, and look at uh, sharing of pricing information among competitors as opposed to secret discounting, right? If I want to form a cartel, the first thing I need to know is what my competitors are charging. And the regulatory process from the Interstate Commerce Commission to the Civil Aeronautics Board to the Federal Communications Commission is extremely well documented as a really, really good vehicle by which uh, competitors learn the prices being charged by their other competitors, which is step one to being able to charge the same prices 
as their other competitors. Step one in collusion is price sharing. So before we kind of, you know, naively launch off into the assumption that if everybody would just charge, uh, would just uh, would just publish their prices, it would be a better world. Why, why is that true? Um, it, it's true because uh, if I show up at Comcast door and I say, you know, um, I'm a growing firm. I think I've got uh, a great product here. Uh, I'm willing to do some things for you, but I'd like you to cut me a deal on your price. Um, there are two kind of ways Comcast can think about that. One way Comcast can think about that is, well, yeah, I, you know, you're a little guy. I cut you a deal on your price. Uh, it won't matter. I still have my prices with everybody else. Uh, the other way Comcast can think about that is, boy, you know, if I cut you a deal on my price, I got to put that up on the tariff site over at the Federal Communications Commission, and every one of my customers, other customers, is going to want that same discount. I can't help you, right? So what I'm saying here is not something I made up sitting here. There is a huge economic literature on this, which you can go look up yourselves. Yeah. Price transparency is not the kind of easy answer remedy that it sort of gets tossed around as being. So we have Ken and then Dave. And I want, I want both of you to just reflect on the, the, the proposition that, that Jeff, and I think Gene also have sort of put out that what we're talking about here is a kind of a traditional price transparency question. What I really want to know, uh, and this is more from an Internet engineering perspective, is whether, whether transparency about peering arrangements and traffic uh, management uh, practices are the same thing ultimately as prices or whether they're somehow different, whether they function somehow differently uh, uh, in, the, in the Internet environment. Because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging question. Jeff and then Dave. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um where we got off on tri pricing transparency, because I think we were talking about transparency of measurement um, and measuring stuff like performance among networks. So, so l l let me take a couple of things in order, and then we'll see if I'm I'm covering the stuff. So, first of all, um, we've we've heard a couple of different sides of the of the monopoly uh, issue from from Gene and Jeff, and we've heard repeated assertions that somehow Netflix was um, trying to undertake a practice to save money or to find the most congested route to punish our subscribers somehow or um, to save ourselves money somehow, and that we've heard repeated assertions that we had um, multiple choices of which we chose few. And so I just want to make sure that I refute that uh, categorically. So. Comcast, the only way to reach a Comcast user is over Comcast network. The only entity that decides how the Comcast connects to the Internet is Comcast. So people keep talking about how content providers um, are the only ones that participate in, in the decision about how to reach an entity. It's actually that entity that advertises its routes, that entity that makes itself available to the Internet, and they're deciding whom to interconnect with and how much capacity to give those interconnections, right? So we've heard stuff like Comcast has 40 peers or Comcast has 100 peers and Comcast may be peered with ChinaNet and Comcast may be peered with Telecom Italia. I would submit to you that very few Comcast subscribers are interested in content that exists on the other end of ChinaNet or Telecom Italia. Most Comcast subscribers are interested in content that exists on the top websites. Netflix as one of those websites that is very popular that people like to use was using five of the six top global transit providers. And I'm not making that up. That's the data. Uh, Renesis is the guys who keep track of this stuff. If you look at that list of top six providers, we were using five of them. So I consider that an incredibly diverse 
um, uh, amount of carriers, and we were using every bit of capacity that was available to us over those different providers. And what we were hearing from every one of those providers is, ouch, this hurts a lot because Comcast is not giving us any more capacity. So we also heard mentioned that um, somehow, uh, you know, we both would share the idea that, that Netflix subscribers should not be harmed and get a ex good experience. Our experience was we were quite shocked at the degree of harm um, that some networks were prepared to uh, subject their subscribers to uh, in order to extract fees from us. We've also heard arguments about proportionality of traffic. And so to be really clear, there's, you can't possibly have a ratio with an access network. So access networks build networks that have 10 times the downstream capacity of upstream capacity. So you can't possibly have an equal ratio with access networks. Furthermore, consumers at home consume from the internet a lot and publish to the internet a tiny bit. So nobody can ever have a, 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 an equal ratio with an access network, that's just a fantasy. What Netflix undertook to do when we built our own content delivery network was not save ourselves a bunch of money but understand that we have an obligation being a large provider of traffic on the internet to make that delivery as efficient as possible. And we did that by creating devices that would cache most or all of Netflix content and put that content wherever it was most efficient for ISPs to provide that content. So if ISPs would like to originate that content from deep within their network where they, they have a very kind of short distance to haul the content and therefore um, are not paying for transport from farther away. Um, we thought that was the optimal way for some folks to do it. Other folks would rather peer with us at internet exchanges. We're completely agnostic to that, but for everybody that's absolutely free. So we felt our, our, our burden was to make our traffic free to people and as efficient to deliver as possible. And what we found is around the world, 99 plus percent of the networks we're connected with do that and do that for free because they want to give their subscribers a great experience. David mentioned BT, um, even networks like Sky who compete with us have their caches, our caches inside their network because they want to give their users a great experience and because if they exist in a competitive environment, they know their users have the ability to switch. The U.S., as uh, Gene mentioned, it's very difficult to switch. Not a lot of people have a lot of choice. And so that's, um, that's kind of the issue as we see it in terms of uh, the competitive nature. And so essentially, if there's monopoly access, as there is for any terminating network, that's just kind of the structure of it, if then that network gets to define who it provides capacity into their network and how much, then that just those, those entities just become a, an extension of that monopoly. So the second big issue was measurement. And I agree um, that measurement, th there's a lot of great work to do with measurement. So Netflix has for a long time provided the ISP speed index, um, which is one of the ways you guys can validate the fact that the vast majority of networks that we work with um, do really great. And only a few of them you know, saw precipitous drop-offs. Um, at performance at one point in time. I also think there's a lot of room to work um, co cooperatively with, with Matthew and David and, and other such entities, um, not just Netflix, but Google, Facebook, you know, a lot of other entities where it's popular sites that people love to access content from. I think we tend to have a tremendous amount of data uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that um, the ISP networks have to cooperate in that process. Netflix, for instance, has data from both the client and server end, so we can infer um, very strongly every single hop along that path. Um, and, and we're actively working 
um, with Sam knows with with CADA with a number of other organizations to try and provide more transparency about uh, the ex the experience consumers receive uh, and and you know when when that gets better and when that gets worse and why Dave and then Ike I, uh, yes we did sort of branch into pricing and I just want to uh, point out that if you look at the agreements that are signed between these large providers they're not just talking about a simple price for a simple connection. Those are very complicated agreements. They may have terms about the number of places you connect, about your uh, your right to, to request new capacity on certain scales. This is a very complicated relationship. I think the idea that there could be a simple price disclosure is simply not practical. It's not as if you're just buying a you know plug that goes into the wall. These are really complicated business arrangements, and there would be a lot of people that do things for each other as part of those deals. So. Um, I think trying to disclose prices is 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 just sort of a it, it, that, that doesn't work. There has to be some other way to discipline this. But that's but that's complicated in a space where people are arguing that neutrality requires constraints on those bargaining. And and I think trying to find a way to thread through that, um, whether well, I'm sorry, I'm I'm out of my scope here because I'm not a, I'm neither an economist nor a policymaker. I do think that there's a special case about people like Netflix and perhaps Google. This comment that there are lots of ways into Comcast is both true and, with respect to Netflix, probably not relevant. And what I mean by that is if you deliver one-third of the traffic that's coming into Comcast, no matter where you show up, you have that point has to be engineered to carry your traffic. I don't care whether it's coming in from Google, it's coming in directly from your caches, it's coming in from level three. No matter where you bring it in, if it's one-third of the traffic into your network, that point's going to be engineered. So it would not make sense for, for, for Netflix to just be running around the outside trying to dump the traffic in any old place, because any old place they dump it in will instantly become an overload. So if, if in contrast, you're a, a small guy, you're a startup, you're trying to deliver a little content, you, in fact, have lots of ways into Comcast. Most of these peering connections work for you, because to the extent we actually have not found congestion, and I'm acknowledging Matthew's, Matthew's concern that you're not really generalized here, you know, an uncongested path, uh, well, let me just say, without, without, without respect to our data, an uncongested path, you know, equally well serves, you know, all the users who come on over that path. So Netflix is a special case in respect to the fact that they're simply delivering such large volumes that their opportunities to sort of pick up a casual path and use it are limited because in some sense they bring their congestion with them. Um, and, and, I, and the final thing I wanted to say, which is about traffic ratios, there's been a long tradition of looking to see whether traffic is in balance. And I'm way outside the scope of the data, right? I need another sign saying Dave Clark offering an opinion as opposed to Dave Clark talking about data. Dave Clark offering an opinion. Traffic balance has been used as a way of, for two ISPs to look at each other and say, you sort of look like me. Yeah, I'll pair with you because you sort of look like me. You know, if Verizon looks at Comcast and Comcast looks at Verizon, they say, well, you know, we really compete fiercely, but, yeah, we sort of look like each other. I have customers, you have customers, I have business customers, you have business customers. You know, yeah, so it's just for a reasonable value in the exchange. And, and balance of flow has been used as a measure of balance of value. But that doesn't tell you what should happen when there is no balance. Because when a Comcast looks at a Netflix, it's obvious that they don't look at them and say, you look like me. They don't look like me, okay? They don't have residential customers. They're serving content. So the point is, 
out of balance is not an automatic signal that one side should pay to the other. It just means we need to find a new rule. And I think moving toward a new norm, uh, and I think what Netflix is saying is, you know, that, that, that norm should, you know, your, your, your interests are well served by saying, look, why don't we have a uniform model here, which is, you know, we get the content in, we get the connections, we don't have to pay for them, we serve the consumer experience. Well, we're moving toward a norm. You're not going to resolve this question by talking about what I would say is vaguely extraneous things like imbalance, because of course it's going to be out of balance. You're not like me. And a company can be in multiple lines of business, you know. A level three can be in a tier one business and in a content delivery business, and that messes everything up. But I think, I think that uh, what we're really groping toward here is an understanding of what would be a new norm for these large data flows which don't fit in a, a previous model. And I say, well, where did this revenue neutral convention come from? There's an old, 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 old story, which I will tell you, and then I will shut up which is the, the, the very first peering negotiation. Now, did this actually happen? I don't know. Is it apocryphal? But 1994 5, when NSF net was turned off in favor of commercial providers, the first two networks had to negotiate a peering relationship. And the story that I was told was the people in the room, of course, were not lawyers. They were businessmen. They were engineers turned businessmen. And they sat down to negotiate the terms of interconnection. And at one point, one of them looked across the table and said, oh, shit, I thought you were going to give me money. <laughs> <laughs> and what they said to me is they heard the thunder of lawyer feet coming down the corridor. And they said, shake hands, no fee, run. <laughs> okay, That's why we have revenue neutral here. And, and Dave, I want you to just, just to make sure that it's really crystal clear to everyone here, I want you to just contrast, again, why that, w w on the one hand, why is that peering relationship even relevant to the Netflix discussion to begin with, and why are you saying maybe it's not, it's different? Because some people are saying there's a departure from norms, other people saying, and you're saying, yeah, we need a different norm. But so I want to I want to make clear why the historical analogy, why the the current peer in practice is is even relevant to the discussion we're having. If you look at the, so we're we're again wandering away from our data, but I you did that. I did. No, <laughs> I think if you if you look structurally at this market, you can you can look at the internet and the ISPs that make up the internet as a platform to use business school language. And there are people who run on top of the platform. In the business school, they'd be called complementers. And complementers sell apps and services and things like that. And I think it makes sense to say that the firms that interconnect to make the platforms are filling out one part of the ecosystem. So when a Verizon and a Comcast look at each other, say, yeah, well, we're, we're going to peer because this is part of building the platform. And this is an IP-level platform. It's a packet delivery platform. Now, when a Google shows up, to pick on somebody who's not in the room, and they say, well, I have a peering policy, and I haven't, I'd like to interconnect with you, I think the ISPs correctly look at them and say, you're in a different line of business. And so there's no reason to think the business relationship would be the same. Now, from a technical traffic delivery point of view, they may be saying the same thing. When Google shows up and wants to attach to Comcast, what they say is, I'm not trying to get to the rest of the internet. I want to get to your customers. 
And when Verizon shows up and says, I want to pair with Comcast, they say, I'm not trying to get to the rest of the Internet. I just want to get to your customers. But I don't think there's any reason why a Comcast would look at a Verizon and at a Google or a Netflix and say, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you fall into the same business terms. So the distinction between what the routing restriction is, which is what an engineer would say peering is, and what the business relationship is, the fact that peering has traditionally been free because it is a was seen as a balance of value, I think simply doesn't inform what the conversation is going to be with respect to the platform providers and the complementers. It's, it's a different conversation. Thanks. Mike. So I'm going to do a little analogy first, um, but I think it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but it's, uh, I, I think, a good one. When I got here to the building, uh, there was a big line in the north entrance that faces the Capitol building. How many of you saw that line and said, I'm going to find a different entrance? Yep. And we went around to the east side and went through that entrance instead because the north entrance was congested. Big line there. East entrance, entrance no line at all. Who made that decision to go around I did. I, I decided to go around and go to that. And each of you that made that decision made that decision yourself. Well, the building is Comcast, and it's got, as we've heard from Dave earlier, on the order of 50 different entrances. And the people trying to get in are, are content providers like Netflix. And Netflix has said, well, we're, we're restricting ourselves to only using five entrances. We understand that those five entrances are congested, but we're going to not use any of the other entrances. Now, who's making that decision about who's going to use which entrance? It's Netflix or the content provider that's making that decision. So when Netflix says, oh, we're using five of the top six global transit providers, um, they're, they're saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm not using all of the entrances. So Netflix had many uncongested pathways into Comcast. Over with, and Comcast has publicly said they've got over 40 settlement-free peers. They've got a number of CDNs who are deeply interconnected. And I should point out that Netflix used to use many of those CDNs and had really good performance and made their own decision to build their own CDN instead. Um, and they also have transit providers that can get you into Comcast. Um, but Netflix chose to use the few transit providers who couldn't handle their loads. Netflix and not the ISPs decides whom they use to deliver traffic to ISPs. And Netflix should have chosen paths or could have chosen paths that could handle their heavy loads. And they could have interacted with the transit providers they chose to make sure they had the capacity before they signed up. So I, I want to ask a final question if I could interrupt you, Jeff. Um, uh, and then I want to go to the audience. Uh, I think what we've heard is that uh, this this question of the the traditional relationship uh, amongst peers uh, has gotten more complicated. Um, that's what Davis told us that this is no longer just like entities connecting to like entities uh, who uh, wh where there are then some second tier entities that look sufficiently different that everyone kind of knows where they belong in the in in the hierarchy. We have this this. We have these entities like Netflix, Google, very large-scale um, uh, content providers that um, 
uh, are looking for interconnection arrangements, but the norms uh, uh, associated with those arrangements are are in dispute, at least on this panel, and it seems like it, as a practical matter they're in dispute in the world. Um, and w what I heard Dave suggesting is that um, there, there has, in a very kind of internet engineering style, that there ought to be some uh, cooperative process of figuring out how to define those relationships so that everyone has a good experience. Um, uh, because that's traditionally what internet engineers do. Uh, as things change, uh, they get together and they kind of figure out how to work them out. Um, and, and I guess what I'm interested in for, from everyone on the panel is, uh, Whose responsibility is it to work it out? Specifically, is it the responsibility of ISPs to work out those interconnection arrangements such that their customers have satisfying experiences? Uh, how, how are these uh, arrangements going to evolve? Are they going to evolve cooperatively? Should we expect that regulators get involved and say, uh, you must uh, um, have interconnection arrangements that produce satisfying results for uh, uh, for your users, or are we going to leave it just to a uh, negotiation uh, and see what happens? Whose responsibility is it to figure this out? Can I take? Because I think we've established, <coughs> just to be clear, what I think we've established is that the quality of the end user experience is in some way going to be dependent on, on on whether these interconnection relationships work out. I think we know in the policy context that there's been a desire. Uh, to separate these two issues from a regulatory perspective, conceptually, say we'll deal with we'll deal with access issues over here, and we'll deal with interconnection issues over there. Um, I think part of what we've heard on this panel is that they are there is some uh, relationship uh, between the utility of the consumer access experience uh, and the and these interconnection relationships. And I'm going to actually go right down the panel, okay. starting with Jeff. Straight down. Whose responsibility is it? Uh, so, Danny, I think that's a great question. Let, let me let me say first of all, let me reiterate the point about measurement. I think the work that Dave has done and all of the progress that's been made over the course of the past several years, in particular, from Samnos to Akamai to the Cisco Visual Networking Index. You know, we are be we are increasingly getting more and more transparency into the network, and that's a good thing. And that's different from getting. Um, revealing the terms of specific business deals, which has some antitrust concerns we ought to be worried about. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there are two, uh, it's not quite this stark, but at the end of the day, it will be mostly market-oriented solutions or it will be mostly government-focused solutions. Um, the problems that we are dealing with here, the economic challenges that we're dealing with here, are commonplace in society. Right? Um, we deal with them every time we get on the roads and face congestion problems. We deal with them every time we get on an airplane and face congestion problems. Um, I would suggest that every time you go through an airport and face a congestion problem at the TSA or walk up to a screening point here in uh, a congressional office building, um, I would suggest that the congestion problems that you tend to run into tend to happen more often in things in which government plays a larger rather than a smaller role. Um, and that that's, if you just think about your own experience, I think you might think that that, that turns out to be a, a pretty decent general rule. Um, uh, is the free market process perfect and seamless and friction-free? Absolutely not. We are looking at a market that is growing unpredictably at an average of 20% a year, 35% a year in terms of peak traffic. It's increased fivefold over the last five years. 
I mentioned glass half full, glass half empty. Gene uh, tends to see it as half empty. That's a miracle. The fact that I can sit down at my television at home and choose a movie from half a dozen different choices, just you know, in, in front of me without without thinking about it. One of which is Netflix, but the others are Apple and so forth. Um, you know, that's something I couldn't do four or five years ago. I can do it today because tens of billions of dollars are being invested every year in the networks that make all of that possible. Do we want those networks to evolve in a, a chaotic way? chaotic, but within the chaos of a market-based system in which the incentives are to, at the end of the day, make the customer happy, or do we want it to, to evolve in a way in which it's defined by people like the people in this room, all of whom are trying to do our best to make our constituents happy, but at the end of the day have to work within the system as we know it, which also has a little friction. Thanks, Jeff. Matt. I don't know that I have a great answer for this being a technical person, but I will just say that, again, there's no technical reason why this congestion should be occurring um, today and that you would expect, I guess, both parties to be speaking to each other. Thanks. Jean. Um, so the, um, the issue of government versus market, I think, is, um, again, not that simple. It's more dynamic, but I would suggest that if the government is looking at it to evaluate where there's a problem, um, it may enhance a marketplace solution. So there's a strong interaction there. And the fact that we had um, a lot of uh, competitive local telephone companies 100-plus years ago and they couldn't figure out how to figure out interconnection in a free market way, and we ended up with a monopoly, was maybe unfortunate, but it might have also told us something about the economics Jeff started with of highly capital-intensive industries, infrastructure industries, uh, where the economics is complicated, as they are with airports, as they are with highways, your other examples. So the suggestion that government may be the cause of congestion may actually be the flip, that government is stepping in in a messy marketplace situation and trying to make the best of a difficult situation. So to me, the better question might be, what are, you, what are your policy concerns here for the marketplace to function? can be purely efficient pricing. Um, but I believe in the Internet environment, we're looking at the fundamental communications platform that enables a lot of social economic activity is fundamental to our democratic processes and freedom of expression in our society. That's pretty big stuff. Hopefully the market can handle most of that. I'm not sure it can handle all of that. So I believe we're likely to be in a place where there's going to be this policy private sector interaction. And one last point on this. Investment is critical. It's come up a number of times. But this isn't the first time it's come up in the infrastructure that enabled the Internet. Um, there was a time when we had rate of return regulation, and the claim was there was overinvestment in the network called gold plating. Um, there was an argument for relaxing regulation and moving to what was called price caps, and there would be massive new investment because it would be the advantage of the carriers. Um, not at all clear that's what happened when we went there. And then when we accelerated depreciation for them, gave them tax breaks, government subsidies to actually invest more, even less clear that that actually led to better investment, maybe led to better return for the short-term shareholders. So we've had a problem of investment in these areas all along, and when it's something as important as the Internet, um, I would say we're invariably going to have a mix of policy pressuring marketplace solutions and 
We'll never get the balance totally right. I think Jeff is absolutely correct. But if the values are important about the network, the things we care about as policy, it's hard for you to imagine that we wouldn't want a fair amount of policy oversight. Ken. Okay. I, I think, you know, I, I want to do a little bit of a, of a reset here because we most of the conversation seems to have been focused around um, how congestion is inevitable. Um, and so I just want to remind people that in the vast majority of networks we work with, and we're interconnected with hundreds of networks in the U.S. and around the world, but hundreds of networks just in the U.S., in the vast majority of those networks, there is no congestion at all. And the vast majority of those agreements are settlement-free. And there's, there's a good reason for that, so let me get to that. But first of all, the sense that Netflix brings with it congestion, I think, is looking at the picture from, from the wrong angle. So what Netflix does is we provide a service to people who want to watch stuff over the Internet, right? And it turns out that people like doing that. People like to be able to watch as many episodes as they want, you know, whenever they want, that kind of stuff. The reason why we've been successful is because we are putting consumers in control of what they want to watch. And that's one of the wonderful things that the Internet provides is this, this instant gratification kind of thing. And so um, – so it's important to remember that the only consumers that are accessing Netflix are people who've paid, like I said, for, say, a 20 megabit package. And when they're watching a Netflix movie, they're using maybe three, four, five megabits of that, even if it's in high def. So the, to think that that's somehow bringing congestion, anybody who's engineered their network to give their users anything like the amount of capacity that they're paying for would have no congestion at all. And in fact, our experience is, Almost all of the networks have no congestion at all. So I just want to make sure it's, everybody understands that this isn't a ubiquitous problem. So then we get to why does congestion occur? Well, and, and I think this is close to be kind of brief. Kind of brief. Okay. I'll try and wrap it up quick. So I think there's a couple of reasons here, and I, I think one of them is to look into this history of peering. And, and David mentioned one aspect of the history of peering, which is peers who look like each other. There's another aspect of the history of peering. There's actually a long history of peering between content providers and, and end user networks based on savings. So the end user network was paying for transit, the content provider was paying for transit, and they got together and they said, look, let's both stop paying and interconnect for free. And in fact, even if you look at a network like Comcast, it wasn't that long ago that they paid for every bit that was entering their network. They were just paying upstream transit providers. Then they got to a point where they did a lot of these agreements. Hey, Google or whoever, let's, let's interconnect for free so you can stop paying for transit and I can stop paying for transit. And, the, and that's great, and that's how it should work, and that is markets working cooperatively and everything's cool. When that breaks is when a couple, just a few of the very largest networks say, you know what, now instead of this, I want an even better deal where now you pay me for every bit that enters the network. And the problem with that is that takes us down the same road as, you know, carriage wars in, 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 the, in cable networks, right? And, and I think that's exactly what the Internet wants to avoid. And I think that's exactly why, you know, people have this concept of free as somehow Netflix or other parties are asking for something that they don't deserve. Actually, that free was based on that concept of mutual savings. And that $0 balance point is a rather stable balance point. That's why it's a good thing versus, you know, us trying to charge them or them trying to charge us. Mike. So I'm going to come back to the question that Danny asked originally. We kind of gotten away from it a little bit, but uh, he was asking who's responsible 
for making sure that there's, uh, you know, that the path that, that content goes through has enough capacity to carry it. And uh, he says, is it the access provider or is it the edge provider or the, or the content provider, streaming video provider? And I, I'll say that it's, it's a joint responsibility for any application on the Internet to have consistent, reliable performance end-to-end. -end. Um, however, I would say that there's a greater responsibility for the sender of the traffic to choose an uncontested path. And um, Netflix has had that choice um, for, for a long time. And uh, that, that's something that, that they've clearly chosen not to do for a period of time and then corrected it over time by, by eventually agreeing to do a direct connection as one, one of over 50 different solutions they could have gotten to get into Comcast network. So um, it, was, it has always been in Netflix's control to fix the issue. They eventually fixed it. Um, and that is, uh, that's, that, that, I think that's probably all I need to say on that. Thanks. Dave, do you want to comment on that? No. Okay. Uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, what's our, do we have a microphone or are people just going to stand up and I'll, I'll repeat the question if I can. Uh, uh, questions, please. Uh, we have uh, we have 12 minutes, so let's be really brief and really questions, uh, not comments, if possible. Rick, and, and if you could identify yourself, please. Who would like to uh, um, Who would like to answer that, Gene? I'd like to answer. I, I, I'm not suggesting it, it is about Netflix. I don't think it is. I mean, I think that's what's caught, captured people's attention because um, Netflix is an example of a highly successful service that demands enormous bandwidth in the internet to compete against something else. Now, it may they not not claim that they like to compete against cable companies. They're partners. They work together. But the reality is that it is exactly, exactly what Ken said. It offers consumers something they're not getting from somebody else, a choice of a set of programming to pick the way they want it in a certain manner with a lower price point, a variety of things. So it is not about Netflix. It's about Netflix as an example of what happens when someone comes up with a killer app a great, wonderful service, a set of services, something really unique and special that can make a lot of money. Um, in each instance, when that happens on such an important communications platform where what makes money may be pure entertainment, it may be sports, but it also may be educational. It may be <clears throat> something that provides important information out to society that is very helpful to our democratic process, to our freedom of expression, whatever. We can't really guess that up front. 
we need a set of guidance here to ensure that there's not unfair discrimination in that process or um, inherently unfair pricing in, in that process so that we get a good free flow of information. That, that's what I'm suggesting. They're just an example. That it, it, it could be Netflix today. It could be somebody totally different tomorrow. I would just add, like, I think that's absolutely true. There's t many great video applications over the Internet. I use Khan Academy with my daughter at home all the time. It saved my life in getting her through algebra. Um, so I, I think we're, Netflix just happens to be the poster child of an early popular application of Internet TV, and we're, we're carrying a little bit of the brunt of the weight of how do we get this right, uh, and we're happy to do that. Good. But that's uh, on behalf other, of lots of others. Thanks. Other questions here? So I, I, I think I sh we should invite Dave to talk about what's in his paper about smaller content um, providers. And uh, I think you mentioned something about that. I did. I'm not sure what it has to do with the merger. Yeah. And I, so let me decouple those two ideas. If you're a, you know, I think Ken has correctly pointed out that perhaps I was being a little flip when I said wherever Netflix goes, it brings its own congestion. I. I think correctly what I should say is uh, to, to use uh, the building analogy invented in a particular way. You could choose which inference to go in at, but if you showed up with 50 busloads worth of people, you might have called in advance and said, let's get <laughs> people at the gate. So there is something special. If you're a small content provider today, if you're a budding competitor, you can avail yourself of the existing CDNs to deliver that content. You can avail yourself of buying transit from one of these transit providers, and it's less than a dollar a month for a megabit per second today. It's amazingly cheap, and get access to the rest of the Internet. <coughs> and it is, if you are a small flow among any, among many, then in fact you all equally benefit from the fact that the paths are basically uncongested. The place you get in trouble as a small provider is if your traffic happens to be co-located with one of these large flows, which at the moment is going over a congested link. So we pointed out there that there was a period of time when it looked like the paths into Comcast. And again, Comcast is just the poster child, just the way Netflix is. We could have said Verizon or Time Warner, or we could have said Google instead of Netflix, although the business deals may be very different in those cases. If you happen to be bringing your traffic into Comcast over Cogent at the time that there was a congestion there, you are harmed in passing. But uncongested links favor everybody. So the issues that a small provider faces entering this market are actually the issues you've been hearing about. There are lots of paths. Buying transit is cheap. The peering connections are, by and large, uncongested. I don't think you are impaired. Uh, by the issues that are going on with the large providers except in passing. So I have no way of tying that to the merger. I don't want to touch the merger with a 10 foot pole. Gene. Just real quickly on, on the merger. Um, there is one thing that is unique about Comcast, and that is that they are vertically integrated. They own NBCU, they own all the NBC Universal content. 
And so they're not just a transport provider. They also they also make their money by um, maximizing their revenue from NBCU content and making sure there's less competition for it. So it's an empirical question as you go into that antitrust analysis. In getting larger, is there somehow a greater benefit to Comcast with Time Warner of foreclosing or raising rivals' costs um, through their behavior on how they treat traffic and congestion issues because it benefits their programming assets more? So they, they're a little bit differently situated than a number of the other, the other cable companies and, and uh, Verizon uh, and AT&T before they got direct TV. Thanks. Other questions? Uh, is that Baron? So I will make a data comment, and then Matthew can cringe. When we look at the paths flowing from Google or you know the Google servers into Comcast, Time Warner, and so forth, by and large, we do not see the same sort of congestion. I find the occasional congested link, mildly, hour a day, but but the data, what the data says is that those links at the period of time we've been sampling appear to have been provisioned in such a way that the experience is so that, the, so that there's no congestion. Now, I have to say, by the way, warn you, people will say, YouTube sucks, Google sucks, content sucks. Okay, there are lots of impairments. Now, what's the difference in the business deal? I'm sorry, that's different. But I will say we did not find the kind of congestion when we look at, we did not find con persistent congestion when we look at Google or when we look at Akamai or Limelight or, or some of the major CDNs. But it's not the case that Google has been silent. It's I know that there have been complaints about Google on Time Warner. Um, so it's not like Google are silent and they complain about free. And, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I pointed out that there's a well-documented well dispute in France between Google and free, and we see congestion there, right? So you also see Google involved in public spats. It's just they're not here. They're over there. I would say Google has been a longtime supporter of settlement free peering and continues to do so. And the free is the as a great example of that. Um, it's not for me to comment on their other relationships. I won't let you put those words in my mouth. They can come out of yours. <laughs> Any other questions? I understand what you just said, but I, I have no data. I mean, you know, if, if Google wants to disclose whether they are paying for access to Comcast, that's fine. But these things are all covered by NDAs. Final question. Jeff, do you have a comment? Well, I, let me just comment and, and maybe coming back a little bit to Rick's point or, or you know, what distinguishes. I, Dave, I think, has given us a very clear answer to the question, what distinguishes um, uh, what distinguishes Netflix, and, and leaving aside the bring your own congestion point, um, you know, the fact of the matter is Netflix is imposing uh, a capital cost on these networks. 
And so it's, you know, there's a difference between, you know, in the airport context, I need a new slot. Well, we'll find a new slot for you as opposed to a whole new airline shows up and says, I need a new airport. And if you're asking me to build a new airport, then I probably want to talk to you about how we're going to cost share on the building of that airport and how I can be confident if I do build you a new airport that I'm going to be able to pay off my airport over the course of the many years that I'm going to have to use it and get paid off. So, you know, is, is Netflix different here? Just by virtue of its size, it is different. And that's a tribute to its success, and it's a good thing. Um, but I think this notion that, you know, you know therefore it, sh it's, it should have a license to free, uh, you know, just like your typical high school, you know, just like any high school or college or, um, uh, you know, our individual personal websites, uh, you know, just doesn't, doesn't follow. I, I guess I just fail to understand. Uh, go ahead, Ken. The point that entities that are selling 20 megabits of capacity somehow don't need to provide that capacity to the Internet. You're not, okay. You're not wait, 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 wait. You're not asking for 20 <laughs> megabits of capacity to a consumer. You're asking for five bits of megabits. No, the consumer is paying for 20 megabits. Okay. And they're you're using got, five You guys are going to. That's what they're being sold. Uh, well, well, no, 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 we're not going to actually do this right now because we're right out of time. Uh, so Dave is going to have the last word, and then we're going to all thank the panel. So Dave. I just want to stick a word in here that several people have talked about the data that Dave presented and so forth. I want once again to remind you of two things I said. One, these are preliminary results, and two, a lot of the hard work here has been done by CADA. This is not MIT data. It's CADA MIT data, and I want to... I want to point out that Matthew and Amog have done a tremendous amount of work here. We hope to continue this work over a multi-year period. Um, I didn't come to Washington looking for money, but, you know, that's always the issue. <laughs> and uh, we, I just want to make sure that these guys are recognized for the, the really difficult technical work that's going on here. Okay. Thanks. All right. On that note, thank you all very much. <laughs>